I don't know, I think it's what I was alluding to before in terms of it's not just about what you walk away with. It is that experience of like, like you're not the same person that you were when you come out of the session, I always think, like musically speaking at least. Hello, Johnny from Soundtrack.academy here, and I have something a little different for you this week. Jack Hughes is the director of the newly formed Northern Film Orchestra based in Manchester, UK. Their mission is to break down the barriers to entry for composers, make an orchestral recording accessible to composers from all types of backgrounds. I was really excited to bring Jack onto the show to talk about what composers can expect from an orchestral recording session and how they can get the absolute most out of the experience. So if you're thinking about working with live musicians or you're interested in what the process looks like, this is a must-listen episode for you. Here's what you'll learn. Number one, when you should first approach orchestras and contractors and what you should have prepared. Number two, how you can use orchestras and recording sessions more creatively. And number three, the biggest mistakes composers make when writing for orchestra and what composers can learn from orchestral recording sessions. All that and more coming right up. But first, be sure to sign up for the Soundtrack.academy newsletter where I share my best film scoring advice and resources. Just go to soundtrack.academy slash newsletter. And as a welcome gift, I'll send you both my eBooks, Landing Film Scoring Projects and The Media Scoring Guide. And as always, thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a review in your favorite podcasting platform. I'll give you a shout out when you do. Okay, on with the show. Hey, Jack, thanks so much for being on the show today. Hi there, Johnny. Thanks for having me. I know this is a bit of a different type of session for my listeners because normally we're recording composers, but last last time I had a sound designer on as well or a sample uh, developer. So we're getting some more diverse guests, which is really, really cool. So can we begin in your words with who you are and what you do? Um, so my name's Jack Hughes. I'm a music producer and I also work in audio post, um, but I'm now the director of Northern Film Orchestra. And we are a session orchestra slash scoring service based up in Manchester, um, providing high quality recording services and orchestral musicians to film composers, game composers, uh, and whoever else wants it, basically. Really, really cool. And your the story of the Northern Film Orchestra, um, as we as we spoke about last time, we had a, we had a bit of a chat. It was a. Uh, mm. You know, you only started towards the end of last year and then and then the coronavirus lockdown kind of kicked in in full swing. So you've had a lot of adapting to do over the time as well. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about uh, your story? How did you get to where you are? What inspired you to set up that orchestra? What's the whole journey to, to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, the kind of condensed version is I worked at a concert hall in Manchester that was um, tied to Cheatham School of Music, which is like one of the sort of leading independent music schools. Um, then I also worked as an usher in the Royal Northern College of Music, which is like Manchester's conservatoire. And basically I just saw that I was un uniquely positioned where I had access to a hall on one side and then loads of amazing talented musicians on the other. And then coming from a freelance film music background, I thought, well, what if, what if I could put those together in a way that yeah, gives composers sort of the best service if they were wanting to record their own pieces with live musicians. So that was kind of like the inception. So as a, my background isn't too too classical. I don't really have much theory knowledge. So, um, but I, I don't see that as necessarily being a barrier into orchestral music. It's just, you have to come at it from a slightly different angle. Um, so yeah, the idea was to set it up so you could come to us with say, when you say a you, piece you you've written in your door or whatever. And even if you don't know any chords or theory or scales, we could then work with you to translate that into something the musicians can read and play on the day, basically. Because um, I feel like, 
yeah, the, the barrier to entry for orchestral music, um, I feel like could, could be lowered in the way that samples have, that's like open a door on one side, but then there's still the other side to that in that, I don't know, it can, people can be off, off put taking the step from just a purely sample world into doing the real thing. So your aim is to kind of take that, that barrier to entry that has been lowered by sample libraries that people can compose orchestral music now. And we hear some incredible people who come from non-classical backgrounds composing some incredible orchestral music. Your aim is to be able to not only get them composing it, but then also to actually have that performed by live instrumentalists as well. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's the that's the kind of gist of what, um, yeah, what the idea was when we set it up. Awesome. So mm -hmm. I thought we could actually explore kind of that process, essentially, the process of yeah, taking sure. a piece from idea all the way through to finished recording. Yeah. So the say, for example, I was a first time, or the first time for me working with an orchestra. Mm -hmm. At what point should I begin talking with you? Where should I start getting the, the yeah. orchestral contractor I mean, involved? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely it's good to have kind of figured out what your piece is going to be first, even if the piece isn't necessarily finished. I'd say you want to be a, a good way into the kind of composition or at least know what it's going to be. And then, um, yeah, I think then would be a good time to start talking to with orchestrators and then just go, um, going in with a clear idea of, of what you want to achieve um, with the recording and everything. Um, but again, that's where if you don't, if you have a limited knowledge of that kind of stuff that we're there to help in terms of advice on ensemble size and what will work and what won't. Because um, for example, when I started this, I just assumed oh, for strings, you just have 10 of everything and it'll just sound sound amazing. But um, no, there's a whole other things in terms of like the physical properties of the instruments and the acoustics that there's a reason why certain things are set up the way they are. And if you don't know about that, um, yeah, I think that's the kind of knowledge that um, can be really key into yeah, getting your recording to be the best it can be, basically. I think a lot of it as well comes down to kind of the emotion of the piece will dictate a lot of the times what ends up um, happening when we record it as well. Because um, at the end of the day, it is about, like, if, if you've got a concept or a story you kind of wanted to get across with the music, uh, then it's good for us to know that, if, if you know what I mean, because we can help you achieve that, basically, in, in all the little things we can do on our side. Yeah. Do you, How much of, of an impact do you find relaying the story, the concept, the emotion to the players in the recording session has on what you end up with? Um, I think, I don't know if some, some people seem to like it more than others. I think it just depends on their personality, really. If you're like an imaginative person, then you're probably going to be more reactive to that kind of thing anyway. Um, but I think it definitely does help just for the, yeah, just the kind of concept behind things will inform the playing a little bit. For example, if something's trying to be a bit angrier or aggressive, um, even if the music doesn't necessarily sound that, if you just like plant that idea and just be like, you know, keeping your mind, this is, it is supposed to embody um, those emotions. I think it does um, find its way into the music, um, even if it's only in subtle ways. But yeah, it definitely helps, I think. And one of the things you said was how once you have an idea for the concept for your composition and, you know, your one of the things that you do is translate the composition into stuff that is playable by players. Yeah. Is that a typical service that's offered by by many of the orchestras or is that something that's quite unique to the Northern Film Orchestra? Um, I don't know. I think a lot of, of a lot of the others do offer it. Um, but I don't know. I feel like we, we try and really sort of work hand in hand with the composer, if you know what I mean, and it be a joint effort rather than just hand a load of stuff off, if you know what I mean, and then we're doing it completely separated. Sure. Um, so maybe in that regard, we're maybe a little uncommon. Um, but I think with a lot of the other orchestras, I mean, I couldn't see why you wouldn't 
at the end of the day because at the end of the day you, you're only putting barriers in front of people then if you're not willing to help them yeah um, so to me it seems like a no-brainer and then also it's like you you're then understanding their music from a more kind of base level when you come to record it sure so what does that preparation process look like typically um well if you start in say from a midi mock-up um I don't know, I think you'll have like a bounce of the whole sort of demo mix and then maybe some stems of the sections on their own. Um, but it'll, yeah, it'll be taking taking the sort of notes from MIDI form and putting them into either Sibelius or Finale, or I know Logic does have its note, notation editor. And then um, I think it's mostly just adding in the details. So like the dynamics, the expression and articulations and phrasing and things like that. Um, so normally composers will have a pretty good idea about a lot of it. But one thing I've found is people with less of a theory knowledge seem to, they have less ideas in terms of the phrasing, if you know what I mean, than mm -hmm. suppose the, the dynamics. Because I think especially like something I always struggled with when I was trying to learn this stuff was like, yeah, just, just knowing like how you tie notes together and things like that. And because it's all subjective and it just comes down to like intention, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And you could, you could have things that are, like quite similar in sound, but then I guess the notation, I don't know, there is still a difference, say if it's in the phrasing of a melodic line or something. Um, but again, I think that's where having the time to like really sit down and go through it with the composer and just ask them like, you know, is this is this what you want to do with this or we could do it in this direction kind of thing. And just helping them figure it out because not everyone has a clear idea until you say, well, here's, here's two versions, which ones you like more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And have you come across a situation where the composer's written something that you you feel or that appears to be sort of completely unplayable and un, unworkable into an orchestra? Um, I don't know. We haven't had something necessarily unplayable yet. We've had difficult. We've had a few difficult first violin passages. Um, <laughs> one in one in particular, I can think of. Um, but I think what, that's difficult in the sense of you need to practice it rather than it being like at next level. Um, okay. But I don't know. We've done. I think maybe for the conductor, there's ones that are a bit more challenging. We did a piece that where it was like for string orchestra, but every desk was playing its own part. And wow. it's like, and the piece by nature was very like, you couldn't really pick out one specific instrument within it. It was kind of just like a wash of sound. Okay. So we get ones like that where it's maybe challenging in less of a technical sense and more of like just, just accepting what the piece is about and knowing that, okay, well, all the things I'd normally do, I kind of can't really with this because of the nature of the piece. And then yeah. thinking, well, how how do we still get the best result within those parameters, if you know what I mean? Yeah. Have you found composers using uh, like textural kind of parts from, I'm trying to think of examples, you know, Spitfire have a few kind of textural libraries and things. Have you found yeah. that you've had to try and translate that into playable score as well? Uh, I'm just trying to think. Um, so we're going to be working on a project soon where I think we're going to be doing quite a lot of that. Um, but up to now, I'd say a lot of the more texture-based pieces have just been sort of um, notated that way, if okay. you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, but no, that that's something that I'm sure will crop up eventually. And we'll have to <laughs> have to drill down into what's going on in the samples first, and then being like, well, how do we get that across? Um, but I think listening will be a big part of that. Sure. And then as well, just communication, like because we have a good relationship between the players, and we draw on like a consistent group of people. Okay. So I can just fire off an email and be like, oh, what do you think of this? Like, what advice do you have to like a violin player or whatever it is? Yeah, use the experts. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you think there's much merit in, you know, if someone has a, a sample that they think is perfect and that's what they're using and they just want that notated for instruments, say it's, say it's texture, is, yeah. is it worth doing or is it better to just stick with the original sample? 
Yeah, I mean, I always think if you've got the time, it is worth to grab grabbing stuff like that. Even if you don't necessarily use it for this thing, like I just think it's good to have loads of sort of toys, Sonic mm-hmm. toys you can play with like on a rainy day or whatever. Um, but yeah, but I mean, I think this thing samples do better maybe than real players can do. Um, but yeah, but if you can find a way to record it properly, I'd definitely recommend it doing that way as well. Sure. What yeah. kind of thing, just out of interest, what kind of things do you think that samples can do better than real players? Uh, well, I don't know. It's when you want <laughs> things to sound a bit artificial, if you know what I mean. Okay, yeah. Or like, so, and also, I guess you can hold, hold a note for longer than you, you, you'd be able to with like a physical instrument. Sure. Um, so, so those kind of things, really. It's kind of small, small kind of int- intangibles that I would say. Um, but I think sometimes as well, just the, just the tone of samples can sometimes be what you want. Yeah. And where, where it may be a bit less rich than the real thing, but it might just suit the the film or whatever it is that you're working on. Sure, sure. One of the things that I've always sort of stood out is is when you get strings like really high up, samples yeah. can sound kind of really soft still, even at really high pitch. Whereas yeah, a lot of the time yeah, the strings sure. always tend to sound a bit a bit more gritty at that kind of um, register. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, one thing I've definitely noticed with the strings is like they have, yeah, they have more of a scratchiness mm-hmm. to them and you have to like do a lot of mixing sometimes to eliminate that. Whereas a lot of that work's already been done by samples. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you were, like you say, after a softer sound, that'd be somewhere where maybe a blend of the two might be the right choice or just letting the samples take the lead the lead on that part as well. Sure. So mm-hmm. how, much, how much do you find people are taking a... Um, the hybrid approach like that using recordings alongside samples yeah I mean I think it seems to be pretty common these days I mean in the case of film it all depends on what the project is I guess so if it's like a a sci-fi story it's gonna it's gonna maybe lean more in that direction than like Mm -hmm. a period drama I guess (laughs) but um but yeah but I think people are realizing now that I don't know rather than have this divide of like real versus um real versus samples that actually you can combine the two in cool and interesting ways that creates something that you couldn't do on your own, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Um, I think percussion samples is the one that I see, obviously, I don't know, they seem to always sound better than the real thing. Like <laughs> if you could get the biggest drums and set them up with all the mics and go around hitting them, and I don't know, I just feel like it wouldn't sound as good as some of the libraries that people have made for whatever reason. And at the end of the day, it's people want something that they could just load up really quick and away sometimes and just get being creative. Sure. Yeah. How, how much do you think that feeds into the real top end stuff as well? This or the A-list Hollywood movies. Do you think they're still supplementing their orchestral stuff with um, samples as well? As in, I don't mean um, the obvious like hybrid orchestral stuff. I mean yeah, like stuff yeah. that sounds purely orchestral. I reckon they probably are, but maybe in more of a kind of that. That's like the second second decision. If we can't, if there's something we need to fix or that didn't quite go right on the day, well, we know that the samples are there to maybe just like patch that up or something. Um, I've had to do it in a few of our mixes before where there's like one note that's not quite right or something. And if luckily samples have been there to like provide a solution kind of thing. Um, but yeah, but I think that's another reason why making your own samples using the instruments that you'd be recording with if you did it for real can be like the really useful then. Yeah. Because yeah, you've so. literally got, if it's the same cello yeah. sample that you're then recording that you need to fix, it makes things much easier. And when you said you've had to fix mixes with with samples, is that what you mean? You've got samples of your own instruments or you've used commercial libraries? Um, No, I think a bit of a blend, really. I mean, we've actually, we developed some contact libraries for the orchestra in isolation that are going to be coming out soon. But for example, now that I've got the prototypes for that, like uh, I think we're only waiting on the winds now, but yeah, all the strings and the brass, 
I've got the the real instruments of my players Great. in sample form now. Well, if I need to patch something up, um, well, I think in a quartet mix I did, I used the Spitfire solo. I think it was the viola library okay. to kind of pat, patch up something that needed in one of the viola lines, I think. Um, but that that quite w- worked quite nicely, I thought, because um, that library is recorded in a very like raw kind of live feeling. Sure. It's more, it sounds a lot more, I don't know what the word is. It's less cinematic okay. and more more as if it's a chamber music kind of sound, if you know what I mean. So yeah. a lot more honest. How hard is it to get, you know, your recordings to blend with those commercial libraries seem- seamlessly? Yeah, um, I mean, it wasn't too bad. It seems to be more about taking away harmonic content okay. more than anything, I think. So it's normally in the live strings. It's more about kind of taking some of the highs off. And I find as well in this kind of low mid-range, like 200 to 300 hertz as well, especially in the cello, you seem to get a lot of resonance there, um, which again, I think in, in libraries has already been smoothed out. So mm-hmm. it's those areas that seem to be problematic um, but then again, there's times when things just kind of naturally fit and you don't have to do much as well. Um, but I think with strings being, especially if it's legato stuff, you have a lot more room to play with than versus like staccato sure. with like the way you can fade things in and out. So yeah, it depends yeah. On, on the music, I guess. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. it, sounds, it's, it sounds like the type of recording that you do is, is very involved as opposed to composer sends in a manuscript you record it and you send the raw files back it sounds like you do a lot of work before during and after to make sure that they're coming away with a with a product as opposed to just a recording yeah yeah i mean it's all about just making sure that what they what they've intended is what they get at the end of the day and just honoring honoring that experience of creating the music and knowing that because that's the other thing i always tell people is that we offer a product and an experience and for a lot of people (laughs) if it is the first time recording with an orchestra it's like for me, it's it's not necessarily about the music and what they come away with. It's the whole package and the sort of how that plays into their development as a composer, if you know what I mean. Just that that feeling of wow, there's a whole stage of people playing my music here, yeah. if you yeah. know what I mean. It's uh, all all of that sort of ties together, really. Yeah, no, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a magical experience hearing it brought to yeah. life by real players. Yeah. Really cool. Um, so, what kind of things can the composer do to make the process a little bit more seamless like how what what kind of stuff can they prepare in their midi mock-ups to make it easier for the orchestrator for example um i think well obviously having sort of clear notes on guidance on what they want um will probably be the biggest thing um i think necessary if you've more if you've already made decisions i think that's the main one if, you, if you've laid out clear what you want and then you just need someone to do the the technical act of actually doing it mm-hmm. um i think is is a really good one because if it's like if you're not quite sure and you sort of, yeah, if you haven't been decisive on it, that's something that can can maybe uh, mess up the process a little bit. Um, but yeah, so I think just being clear and having a good idea of what you want. And then if you don't necessarily have an idea, have like some re- references of music that you like, that's the kind of thing you're going after. And you could just say like, I want this sort of atmosphere or feel or whatever, even if you're not, you don't actually know what's going on in terms of like, yeah, the actual music terminology um, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think as well, just having empathy from the players on their side as well goes a long way and just giving, give yourself a crash course in every instrument to sort sure. of a basic level, just so you know what they can and can't do and then what, what's maybe going to be problematic for people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean what, what, kind of, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see composers making as they, as they try to bring music in to be recorded? Yeah. Well, we get, uh, we get 
parts put out of range. Okay. Um, sometimes um, it's only happened a couple of times, but um, so that that's not necessarily a hard fix. It's just like a transposition. Um, but I don't know. We've we've had things with because um, we've worked with American composers in the past, and whether or not there's just a different kind of way that they do things with their scores, um, compared to in Europe. I don't know. It seems to have been like some things maybe get lost in translation there. All right. Yeah, yeah, and with like the uh, with the sharp and flat signature at the start and things like we we had one where I think that there's a bit of confusion of whether something was a sharp or a natural, and just little things like that. Interesting, um, really. Yeah, yeah, but I wouldn't say up to now we haven't had anything that's say a, a huge mistake crop up yet. Um, but that's but that's why we just say time is the critical factor that if we have enough time to look after things, uh, look over things, and make changes if they need to be, rather than being so up against it that there's nothing you can do. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of the reverse of that question as well. What things do you think composers could learn from orchestral sessions to inform them to create better uh, mock-ups? Mm, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I think, I don't know, it depends in your writing style. Like when I write with strings using a, an ensemble patch, for example, you can I end up with like a MIDI file that's got like stacks and stacks of chords mm-hmm. where maybe it could be better to, I don't know, write specifically for the ensemble you're going to have at the end. So maybe not have everything just in one file and be like, all right, I'm going to separate my voices before I've even written a note kind of thing. And then your your mindset's already thinking as to like, how how does it translate for the different sections then rather than just, I'm going to do my thing and then, and then we'll figure out (laughs) a a way to kind of like modify it to make it playable. Um, So I think, and again, it's a balancing act. You don't want to kind of constrict yourself. If you've got a way of working that works for you, sure. then just do that. But I think having, yeah, maybe approaching it with that mindset would definitely help. Um, yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that you said earlier was about having empathy with the players as well. Yeah. And I think that is something that on a lot of mock-ups that, you, that kind of give it away, for me, some of the things that give away that it's a mock-up and not a real orchestra is is things like, yeah. um, you know, actually thinking about how an instrument plays, like, a flute section for example or a solo flute like they actually need to breathe at some point <laughs> yeah and yeah definitely whether and then people like are trained the musically sweet or not spots they hear that as well for, yeah yeah Say that like again, the sweet, sweet spots for each instrument as yeah. well seems to be like because in samples they've got quite a pure sound yeah and that they you can mix it in a way that the quietest thing can poke through whereas in reality mm-hmm. it might not quite work that way so i yeah. think that's maybe one of the things that comes down to sort of experience and confidence Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think just know, like you say, knowing what the instruments can do, and especially in in like a group orchestral setting as well, um, would be really useful. What do you mean by that? Just like I don't know, knowing where instrument every instrument kind of shines and what it's best at, and maybe not trying to get get one thing to do something that it's not. Sure. That maybe it doesn't lend itself well to, and the player could be frustrated because it's like <laughs> oh, I'm trying really hard, and he hasn't realised that. He's asking me to do something that like isn't what the flute's about or whatever. Yeah, you know sure. what I mean? Just just those things. You've written a bass bass guitar part for flute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. For sure. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like expectations, I think one of the things that uh, I know the first time I did a record uh, an orchestral recording session, one of yeah. the things that was quite difficult is is knowing kind of what what you would be expecting to receive from the composer as you go into a session. Like, do you, are you expecting the composer to send click tracks, MIDI tracks? What what do you expect to have ready as you go into the yeah. session? Whether that's created I mean, by the composer or by you as well. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it will depend on the nature of the piece. I mean, me personally, click tracks are always a bit of a worry. I feel like if you can avoid them and let the conductor be the click track, 
that's always the the best outcome but if you mix in if you know you're mixing it with electronic elements or it is locked to picture and everything needs to be like really hard sync um then yeah we'd ask the composer to send a click track over basically and then we'd we'd program that then into our pro tools session pretty much so we so we'd have their click track as an audio file but then we'd have it so um we could just run the click from in pro tools and it would all still be the same um, and again, that's quite important. Say if you're doing like a feature film in one big session mm. and then you've, you've mapped everything out and you can jump between scenes then easily and the click and everything's in, in the right place where you need it to be. So you'd want that click mm-hmm. file as audio as opposed to like as a MIDI click track? Yeah, we'd normally ask for it as audio, yeah. And then we'd, and then, um, and then we'd use the score as well to kind of go through bar by bar and say if we're switching from 4.4 four to 5.4, we'd program program that into Pro Tools as well. Okay. Um, and then in terms of other things for the composer to de- uh, deliver, sometimes it can be useful to have some stems, um, like um, when we did that piece with the choir, um, I think it was good good to have stems of the other parts just there in case we needed to, um, yeah, just indicate harmonically what was going on in the piece, because obviously we, they weren't able to record it with the rest of the orchestra. Um, so yeah, but I'd always say the, the more things composer can pass to us, the, the more sort of ammunition it gives us um, to lay the session out in the best way. Okay, mm-hmm. this might this this might be a finicky detail, but are yeah. there any guidelines for that audio click track? Uh, I don't. I don't normally. I don't normally have have any guidelines. No, I mean, I've, I'd I'd hope they have the sense to not choose a really annoying click <laughs> and also to not make it like crushingly loud or something. Sure. Um, but no, I usually just say whatever whatever click track you've been writing to, just send us that basically, sure. and then. If it's been good for you, then it should. There's no reason why it won't be good for us. No tonal clicks, then. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, yeah. You don't want anything that's going to like really uh, mess with the players' ears sure. when they're trying to play or whatever. Mm-hmm. You, you briefly dropped in then about the uh, the the choir recording. That was something we were talking yeah. about before we before we actually started recording the interview. So, yeah. could you just give us some some context for the listeners what you what you what that recording was about? So we got approached by a composer called Matthias Bjornskov from um, Denmark, and he'd basically written this piece that was based around the Bride of Frankenstein. Um, so it had a bit of a Tim Burton kind of vibe. Um, nice. Yeah, I really liked it. It combined sort of gothic horror elements with romantic elements. And then um, it's for chamber orchestra with a four-person uh, female choir. And then there's a solo soprano back in Denmark that's going to add, she's going to be the bride of Frankenstein cool. and add her parts to it, which we're still waiting to do. Um, but yeah, that was 33 musicians in total. With the current restrictions as they were in Manchester, we were only allowed to have, I think it's 15 to 20 on stage at any one point. Um, so originally I was like, how am I going to solve this puzzle? I don't really, like the, wor- the worst thing I want to ever tell someone is no, we can't do this. Like, <laughs> um, So I had to figure out, can is this possible? Can we record it safely? And I realised that yeah, if you if you if you broke it into chunks, then we could do say 50, 15 at a time in two slots, and then do the choir at the end. Uh, and that's what we ended up doing. Um, so it was quite uh, I don't know. It was a bit intimidating going into it, just because we'd never done that before. But I was also a bit excited because I know that's closer to maybe more how sort of large um, feature soundtracks are done, where it's more section by section. Um, so yeah, I was just excited to see how it went, really. But none and of then, this was with a click track either, was it? Uh, so we had we had a bit of click for the intro just to solidify things, and then and then it kind of went free time, yeah. Um, so luckily we had a really good conductor called Melvin who kept everyone together, and I think he saw. I think he was hearing the whole piece in his head whilst only uh, conducting section by section. Sure. Um, and obviously with the full score there to kind of guide him along, uh, yeah, that was really good. Um, 
but no, it ended up being a really positive experience, I think. Um, so we started with the piano, strings and harp. Um, originally, it was just going to be strings and do the piano and harp later, but then uh, Matthias recommended that we do it that way because the piano and harp actually started the piece and they kind of set the pulse, if you know what I mean. So sure. we were like, it's just going to be more complicated doing it the other way. Um, so yeah, so we did the strings, the piano and harp, and then that was one hour. And then we had another composer for an hour. Then we had a little lunch break and then we came back for the winds and percussion. And in that time, we'd assembled a comp track of the strings we'd done that morning, basically. And then the wind and percussion laid their parts down over that. Uh, and then we did the same again for the choir, basically, at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, it was kind of like a bit of a Lego music, <laughs> Lego assembly kind of job, but it seemed to work in the end. And I think, um, I don't know, in some ways it could maybe be better because it allows you to really focus in uh, section by section if you know mm -hmm. what I mean, rather than just taking a broader look at things. Um, so yeah, it was a good experience, I'd say. You can spot a few mm -hmm. more of the details on each section as you work through. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And how, yeah, how each, all the voices kind of come together. Sure. Now mm -hmm. you said you had a really good conductor that helped gel that all together. Do you generally yeah. advise composers to hire a conductor or, or do you think composers should conduct themselves? Uh, it depends really. I'd usually... Yeah, for me as session supervisor, I'd want them to use our conductor mm -hmm. just because, I don't know, I think for the players, it's it could be annoying to maybe be changing hands all the time, especially if you've got someone that's like really, started the day really strong and everyone's like, yeah, session's going well. It's, it would be, it could take the wind out of people's sails a bit if you swapped it and then, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, things change. Um, but if a conductor's really, uh, a composer's confident with conducting and they want to do it, that's absolutely fine as well. Because um, again, it's just, we're putting them in the position where they're going to have the best um, the best kind of read on things, if you know what I mean, in terms of the takes, really. That's a really good point that you mentioned there. Mm -hmm. I asked quite a few people about whether or not composers should conduct, but no one's ever said, sort of talk, talked about it from the musician's perspective before, that it does take time to to learn how a composer works and how those, you know, yeah. to actually develop a relationship between composer and conductor, sorry, um, instrumentalists and conductor. So it's, yeah, definitely. Um, that's quite interesting that yeah that you're yeah bringing in a some a new conductor especially when you're working on you know quite tight timescales you know you, the actual the first session with the with the conductor might actually be the recording session yeah throwing having a, a new style there as well could be yeah could be really throwing for the musicians that's really interesting. yeah and I think and I think most con composers if they were going into it conducting they kind of have that in the back of their mind I would have thought and yeah. just be like I've, I've only got so much time these are all new people that don't really know me so it's like I'm not going to go around throwing my throwing my weight around just for the sake of it you know what I mean <laughs> it's like we just, just keep keep things on time and nice and streamlined no friction everyone's just having a good time and just enjoying playing the music yeah yeah great <laughs> And what other things can a composer do to get the most out of a recording session? Recording session. Um, well, I think that's probably different depending where you are in your career. Because um, I think if you're starting out, you can video the session and that's like already then an amazing thing you've got on your website. Mm -hmm. I think sort of going away from other kind of craft related things. Um, but also I'd say it is a good educational thing especially if you've never if you've never recorded your music with live musicians just that thing of right i've got a deadline i have to submit my pieces by this date and then we've actually got to go and record it i feel like in a way it's like an accelerated learning process if you know what i mean you end up cramming a lot of things into like one short burst mm -hmm. that ends up telling you a lot and um and i've only recorded my music with the string quartet before i've not actually done the full orchestra yet <laughs> but even in that i was like 
I don't know, it made me want to be more confident in my musical decisions. Yeah. Because before then I was thinking, oh, it might not work. And then, whereas now I'm like, well, I trust the musicians to make it work. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like they know, I feel like they know how to pull the best out of your music when it's on the page, yeah. especially if they're, if they're used to playing together as an ensemble. Um, so I think definitely if you're starting out, uh, if, if it was like, yeah, I've got 700 quid, I could recover the orchestra or I could go and buy this new library. I'd say the library's always going to be there, but the experience you'd get by doing the orchestra is like, I don't know, it's like an accelerator. It's a lot getting crammed into one and you're going to come away from it like, I don't know, just probably really confident and then really inspired to make more music. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, that, that's one part of of the the process of doing it like this, where you actually create music, have it recorded, and then and then submit it later, mm. is that it does mean you have to break down the process a little bit more. And like you say, you actually have a point where the composition kind of finishes. Like you have to have that deadline yeah. for the composition as opposed to being able to tweak things and add things right to the very, very last minute. You can actually, yeah, right, yeah. composing is done now. Now it's recording. It's nice to have that that end point. Yeah, I think it's one of the hardest things in any art is like knowing when to walk away. Yeah. And if that, if that is taken out of your hands, I think that can be actually really uh, powerful yeah. in terms of getting the best work out of you. Because then you're not... I don't know. It's that thing of like uh, blank page syndrome. Yeah. It's like the possibilities are just so open that where do I even begin? Where it's like, yeah, sometimes you need that bit of fire. Yeah. That fire, fire under you to like, yeah, to, to get the best out of you. Yeah. Yeah. I heard a great quote the other day about that blank page syndrome, talking about yeah. writing as opposed to um, musical composition, as in, as in uh, writing text. And they said there's, yeah. a, there's a reason they call it a cursor. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> no, it I makes can't you curse. Who, yeah, I can't remember who said it as well, but there's another one where he's like, oh, I enjoy having written, but not but not being a writer <laughs> or something like that, which yeah. I think as well for composers is probably something they, yeah, a sentiment they'd share as well. Yeah. Because it's nice when something's finished and you can look back on it and yeah. being like, oh, wow, I actually did that. But when you're in the heat of it, yeah, yeah, it might, it might, might not always have the most positive feelings about it no no although mm-hmm. some people I, I asked this the other day in, in um in the facebook group about people's favorite part of the process of the composing process and a few people said like yeah the you know the looking watching their music at the end is their favorite bit seeing it all come yeah. together but then other people absolutely love the actual being inside it and doing it at that moment in time as well so it's interesting how yeah yeah people i guess it's different it. for everyone yeah I mean, totally. my um my film music lecturer at uni said he'd never watched never watched anything that he had actually worked on yeah so by that point he'd seen it enough times anyway yeah um, but yeah i'd always thought like if i did if i wrote music for a film it was in a cinema like I'd, you'd probably go and watch the first one but maybe not not the rest if you're doing like 100 films maybe no become, yeah yeah i find it a, bit it's too a really busy. strange experience because you're so you're hyper aware of everything that's that's going on in that room as well yeah and particularly with you know with the with the big major movies they do lots of test screenings and stuff like that so you get a feel for how audiences react uh, like yeah. earlier on but on indie on indie movies you don't so you're in the room and suddenly like there'll be a part of the scene where everybody in the cinema laughs and you're like oh i never realized that yeah. was a fu- that was a comedy moment before or anything like that you get this you get a really interesting feedback at that stage yeah as well. yeah yeah definitely um so one of the things i was quite interested in is uh obviously you as I mentioned, we've already kind of talked about, you're very hands-on with what you do and and mm. you seem really open to trying to solve any kind of creative problem that comes your way. Yeah. How much scope do you feel there is for composers to like experiment uh, with orchestras? For example, you know, like Hans Zimmer talks about how he, for, um, was it uh, Inception? He had the horns up in the, on the balconies and recorded yeah. all that to get the sound of the room. How much scope is there for that kind of experimentation with orchestral sessions? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely a lot of scope, really. It just comes down to, uh, I don't know, maybe your personality. If, if someone's a bit more conservative in the way they do things, maybe they'd be less willing to try those things. Um, but yeah, I think it's something that more composers should embrace. I mean, going back to the Hans Zimmer example, that's that in itself is quite simple. All you're doing is manipulating the placement of people in a 3D space to achieve a certain result. And that's something I'd like to see more of recent, uh, personally. Uh, I watched a video the other day that was about why the orchestra is placed where they are. And mm-hmm. there were certain historical reasons, um, but it just got me thinking like, there's not, I don't know. I, I want someone to come to me with something really strange and be like, this is what I want. And I'm like, cool. I'm, I've no idea if it's going to be any good, but let's just go, go and give it a go really. Um, but I think again, that's another dimension of creativity that maybe people aren't thinking about because they're in the world of samples, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. And then when, when it's with real players, yeah. That's another another variable you can play with is like placement or any other things like that. So yeah, I think um, especially now with the limits on large ensembles, people will maybe be pushed to do more with less musicians. So creative placements and all these kind of things might be something that, um, yeah, get used more often. Um, one thing I'd like to do more of in our sessions is, because we've got an amazing lighting rig that has every color of the rainbow. <laughs> And we just keep it to the nice boring, like classical white. But I was thinking, well, what if we did like, I don't know, we do pink for one take or like, what if we did a dark blue? Like, would that, would it change things? See, Maybe yeah. it wouldn't, but you know what I mean? It's like these little elements that I just, I just love if someone was like, well, can I do this in my slot? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah. let's do it. So yeah, I feel like, um, yeah, I'd really push people to explore those possibilities. That might be something if, if really they were cool interested in it. to have on like, you know, you're, you're, you're contracting for whatever you use to kind of book sessions or when you're talking with the composer to actually have that, like what colour scheme do you want? What colour does this piece evoke yeah, that you that's, want that's to actually be on a good while point. the players are playing it? Yeah, yeah, I might have to ask that. That'd be that really cool. So. Really but again, whether or, whether or not the musicians would appreciate yeah. that. If well, they're sight reading and yeah, the colours are going all over the place. But that's a point. Again. That reading yeah, lights yeah. on the stands as well, yeah. Yeah, but, but, um, but yeah, if it's what the clients want, then yeah. that's our job to deliver at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that kind of experimentation we talked about placement of players yeah. and things? Obviously, a lot of a lot of um, orchestral sessions now are going towards kind of shared sessions where speed is of the yeah. essence. Can that kind of experimentation be done on a budget, or do you think it's it's only kind of, it's limited to sort of higher budget, more time? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely be ca- can as long as you've got a sort of solid idea of what you want to do. Like, let's say you had an hour to record a three minute piece. And you said to yourself, right, everything everything up to, say, minute 35 is just business as usual. And I'm just going to make sure that by that point, we've got enough takes that I'm happy that even if the next 25 minutes go horribly, then I've still got we needed what we needed. And then you could say, use the next 25 minutes. And you could be like, right, guys, you've played for the piece. You kind of know what it's about. Could we do some improv? Could, we, could you adapt what's on the page slightly differently? Or, you know, things like that, maybe. Yeah. And just open up the dialogue and see what ideas the players have. Because yeah. they might play through something and been like, oh, I wish you'd done this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or like, and especially on like like technique-based things, like with strings and like, because there might be a certain line where it's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this was tremolo? Yeah. And things like that. And so I think, again, if you're just programming a bit of time to explore those ideas, um, yeah, is probably the best way to do it. And is that a typical way that you suggest to run a session? Like, if you've got say five pieces to get done, run all five, yeah. get a take of them, and then go back to make sure you've definitely got a recording of all five, and then go back to, to try and tweak yeah. or fix. I mean, I mean, if we were doing five pieces, it would be like you'd tackle each one by one, if mm. you know what I mean. Okay. And you'd you'd move you'd move on to the next piece once that was kind of all boxed off. 
usually anyway i mean again it depends on what the music's like and how conf that what how the composer wants to go about things um but yeah i think as a general rule of form that's probably the best approach usually yeah yeah mm-hmm. and you mentioned just purely from a logistics standpoint you mentioned one hour you might you know if you had an hour to get a three minute piece what is a kind of typical amount of time that you need to get you know how much yeah how much recording so, can you get out of one hour yeah so my advice to people is that six to seven minutes of medium difficulty music which is actually quite vague um, but <laughs> i think i think as a general rule it seems to it seems to have stood stood by quite well uh, i'm just trying to think in our the longest piece we've done in a one hour session i think was 11 minutes right but that was like an experimental piece and the composer was going into that knowing that, you know, you're only going to get three or four full takes of this through. There wasn't going to be any comping or overdubs. Yeah. The piece was just, they're going to play it through start to finish and that's it, basically. Um, whereas other ones, if it's a lot more specific and technical, um, you'd want to, I'd say the first portion to play through a few times, figure out maybe a bit of bowing or phrasing and things like that. And then the next bit is like, say, playing through the piece in sections and then say the last third of the hour would be revisiting any points um, in the piece that we feel like were maybe st- slightly problematic or we think we can do better now that we've explored the piece more. Um, yeah, I think fam- familiarity is a really big one. Okay. Definitely. And that, yeah, it seems to be the final 20 minutes of the hour will be like as productive as the 40 that come before sure. it, if you know what I mean. Because everyone builds happens. up. Yeah, they build up to that point where it's like, and everyone locks in and then they just do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so on that, on that kind of vein, if you had multiple pieces to do, not even just in a one-hour yeah. session, but like a multi-hour session, yeah, is do you do you think the best advice would be to start with the the easiest pieces and work up to the more difficult ones, so that yeah. everyone's uh, locked in, I'd, or vice versa, so you've got more time? I don't know. To work I mean, I'd, I'd probably say start with the challenging ones. Okay, I reckon, and then you know, even if if even if they don't go well and it's <laughs> it's a big struggle, you know, you've got easier ones yeah. that you can if you move to because that's the other thing as well you could start with one if it's not quite working you could be like alright well let's just we'll move to one of the easier ones sure. we'll let things simmer down a bit and then we'll tackle it again um, yeah I think it's managing managing the emotions of the session as well can come into it a lot right because as with anything when you're dealing with human beings it's <laughs> like they're not robots you've got to accept that if people you're going to get a better result if people are into it, aren't they? Yeah. And if you set set the day up that makes it as comfortable for them, I think it, um, yeah, it'll pay off. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you have anything that you, you kind of do um, on every session where you do try to like motivate the players or to, to push performances yeah. or anything? Or do you leave that in the hands of the composer or conductor? Um, usually, I mean, on sessions, I try and stay out the way as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, but last time I gave, I gave a little talk just explaining that recording this in sections i think the phrase in i was let's let's give your colleagues the gift of some beautiful string parts to record their bits after and i was like i wanted to kind of challenge them and get them in the mindset of i want people to i want the people that come afterwards to have to raise their game based on what they're hearing that we've done sure i think um but other than that at the moment um no i usually just give them a brief introduction and uh yeah let the pros do their thing yeah Nice, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pros don't always need that much that much pep talking, do they? <laughs> no, no. And just um, what kind of limitations do people need to be aware of when working with a UK-based orchestra in terms of things like union regulations and things like that? Yeah, um, so there's something called the Pact Agreement, which specifies all of this. And that is, oh, what's it? It's between the MU and then I think it's film and television producers alliance um so it's a long and boring document that covers like pay and sort of session length um but the long and short of it is 
yeah, we're an MU accredited orchestra contractor. So if your project meets the requirements of being classed as for commercial release, so let's say it's for Amazon Prime or it's Netflix or BBC or something like that, then we're we're obliged to basically our rates are set out in this pact agreement pretty much. Um, so yeah, that comes down to like is the murky territory of what counts as commercial use and all stuff like that. So, for example, we had an inquiry about a game, and even though the budget was pretty good, I don't actually think it would have qualified because there wasn't it wasn't specified what the end outcome for that project was. If you know what I mean, like they've just made this game, but there's there's no there's no showing like how it's being released, if sure. it's going to be on shelves or stores or whatever. Um, and then the way that works is basically we just have uh, one session is classed as three hours, and then there's certain rules in terms of like what. Um, how much people can do over that and then they need a set number of breaks and all things like that so there's basically just a big chart that you have to go through and then you can kind of tally up where you where you fit in and then that that kind of shows you um yeah what your session length can be and how much the, the players cost but in in the uk i think it's 199 pounds per musician for a three-hour session okay yeah and are there limitations in terms of how much material you can record whether you're allowed to do overdubs things like that uh, I don't actually think there are, I don't think there's any solid limitations on that as far as I know. Um, not that I've come across, I've yet. Um, I remember in uni them telling us though that there can be, sometimes there are rules about overdubs and you can only do a certain amount of things, but I've yet to come across um, any hard kind of barriers to things, if you know what I mean. That's interesting. So, because I mm-hmm. mean, that is something that, that you hear a lot about people talking limitations in terms of how much material can be recorded. Like you said, overdubs and stuff but then it's interesting that on the ground you've not actually come across those barriers yet yeah i think it's just a bit of a balancing act really between the yeah the commercial side of things and budgets and then making sure the musicians are looked after Mm -hmm. and their working conditions are as best they can be sure um yeah great so we've talked a lot about process and everything what Mm -hmm. do what does what should a composer expect to come away with after a recording session what should they actually have um, so usually they'll specify whether it's raw recording stems that they'll be walk, walking away with. Um, so a lot of composers will want to do the edit and mix themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, or we, we have some people, because we do standalone pieces, not just film music, and it seems to be with those composers, especially the less technically savvy, they'll ask us to do the editing and mixing for them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, generally you'll walk away with um, either all your raw stems or a Pro Tools session or like a finished mix, basically. And again, with the mixing, that's a back and forth. It's not just like, here's your mix. It's here's, here's first draft. Sure. Please send us your notes and then just keep keep it going really until they're happy. And are you doing all the mixing? Mm-hmm. Uh, for the most part, yeah. I'm, I'm doing the bulk of it. I do all the editing and then, um, yeah, I mix it. And then I get um, some people who, whose ears I trust to <laughs> kind of give me their second opinion on it. Sure. I was just going to say, in terms of mixing, though, it's quite less. I know it's very different to the mixing I'm used to, like being from a production and like, because I do a lot of like hip hop stuff. Okay. So I'm working with vocalists and I do a lot of beat making and it's all very like hard <laughs> compressors and all this. Whereas like I'd re- I'm rarely using any plugins, right. I'd say, when I mix other than like a bit of EQ. Mm-hmm. So much of it is just in the balancing mm-hmm. and like working with the mics. So we use loads of mics. Okay. We probably use too many, but that's what I want because then it's like we've got options. Sure. If you know what I mean. Um, so it'll be things like when it's a quiet passage, you raise the room mics up mm-hmm. and it'll really bring out that like airy high end. And then sometimes you might want to suck the room mics down and sort of um, embrace more of that close sound, mm-hmm. depending on what the piece calls for and things like that. 
and then also automating reverbs in and out is quite a kind of helpful technique. Um, definitely in edit, I use reverb a lot in editing as well to sort of gel bits together. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's all things like that, really. But um, but yeah, I'd say if you've never if you never sort of tried mixing a big orchestral recording before, it is a lot of fun, and it's using a different set of skills to necessary mixing like rock or dance music or something. Right. Mm. Yeah, that's the um, that kind of shows it's testament to the recording quality, I suppose. Because I've had I've yeah. had pop mixes like that before, where you know I've set the project up and I've balanced everything, and I'm like. That's done. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's yeah. Those those are always good days. Yeah. I think, uh, when it's like that, but um, but again, it's like I don't know. You can. I think it's easy to overcomplicate things sometimes yeah. and be like, oh, I've got to dive in and do all these tweaks and like crazy EQs and everything. But I just think if, if something sounds good, it's like I mean, the, with the mics we use and everything, it, it gets you like eighty percent of the way there. Yeah. And then it's just like the fine finer details then, and then it's more about like what is the piece saying, and then just. Like sometimes you might just want to bring the cello up if it's if the cello is like a prominent line in a certain bit mm-hmm. and it didn't necessarily poke through in the way the composer wanted when it got played. That's like you can use the automation to just, um, yeah, just put a bit more shine on the cello, for example, in that moment. You you <laughs> slipped it in there, but I think that tiny bit of advice is just so key. You said um, if it sounds good, that's what you want. Like yeah. that is it. There's so many. There's so many. I see it happen all the time. And I was guilty of it when I first started um, composing and producing is the first thing you do is go and slap an EQ on everything and roll off where the frequencies yeah. aren't, ah, the top and bottom. And then you're listening and you're like, it's just too much. It sounds rubbish. Whereas the first thing you should do is actually just listen and then find out the things that need actual treatment. Mm. One of the things, obviously right now, and you, we've talked about the your limitations in terms of how many musicians you can have on stage at the moment because of the mm-hmm. coronavirus. How have you um, adapted to that? Has it changed anything like long-term for you in terms of working practices? Has it changed how you're going to approach sessions? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm trying to think all the way back to March. So we did our first ever session in January um, and then we had another one planned for the end of March. We had some American composers who were going to fly over. Uh, which was all really wow. exciting, um, and then and then yeah, everything hit, and we were like, you're probably not going to be allowed to do it. I think it was when the because the air travel was it the air travel ban was like first before there was any mention of lockdown and things, uh, and then yeah. I was like, yeah, and then I had to be to the client. The clients were like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to travel. Can we do it remotely? And then can we do it remotely? Became can we do it at all? <laughs> and then it was like, no, we probably can't, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, so I think bouncing on from that. I don't know. I think I was probably overly optimistic. I was like, oh, we'll just do it in April then instead of March or something. <laughs> and then it just kept going on. April was June. June became July uh, and everything. So we did we did get back to recording in July. Um, but by that point, we had to dial things back massively to only string quartets, pretty much. That was kind of the first adaptation we had to do. Is that, yeah, com- coming back from full orchestra size down to smaller ensembles um, was a big one for us. Um, and then moving forward was... I don't know, because it's hard to sort of predict where things are going. And even now I have people asking about full orchestra recordings and I'm sort of telling people March as like an estimation, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of hard to know for sure. Um, So at the moment, I'd say we're pivoting more towards the smaller ensemble groups um, of between like, yeah, 10 to 15 musicians and and really focusing on extracting the most value we can from those kind of sessions. Um, Yeah, and working with the limitations in terms of spacing and everything. Um, so yeah, it was those kind of adaptations really. And then just, I mean, I think not having the time to focus on recordings ended up being a good thing though, because 
gave me time to really do a lot of research and sort of work on the marketing and the business side of things and then really get my head around like just how how it all works in mm-hmm. this industry and like moving forward like what is the best best way of setting things up in terms of like um the sort of onboarding procedure for clients and all things like that mm-hmm. so i think i think in that regard it was kind of positive but um but yeah moving forward now it's more just like um so the mu have been good in sending out um like resources for safe working practices for recording and things like that um so for us it's just about like yeah just keeping up with that really making sure if everyone things are the same every time people come if you know what i mean so it's like we have some sense of normality mm-hmm. even though it is a bit strange um so one thing now we have like all masks back in the backstage area for example is compulsory right. it's not compulsory on stage but um um but then for example like with the choir one as well there's there's extra limits if it's singing mm-hmm. versus say like woodwinds for obvious reasons so that's another thing where it's like the spacing becomes more with it where it's singers so for me, really, I just have to kind of keep on top of all of this and sort of, yeah, try and keep my finger on the pulse of what what the rules are and what we can and can't do yeah. and how, and then just work that into a plan that's still safe for people, Yeah, I guess. Mm-hmm. What an insane first year it must have been for you because you only actually set up the whole, the project, was it October last year? You sort of... Well, yeah, I had, I had the idea in October and then... I remember it was December when I first when I launched forward with yeah. finding the clients for our first session. So yeah, it's probably one of the I don't know the worst years to start an orchestra, I imagine. But in but in the same way, I don't know. I feel like not that it's a blessing in disguise, but it's like a reset button yeah. for a lot of elements of the music industry right now. Yeah, which I think a lot of a lot of organisations are going to have to do a lot of thinking about, like what the next step is and sort of how yeah. What, what the new future is going to be like that we move into. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's actually made me really want to pursue concerts and orchestral concerts as another sort of um, side of our offering as Northern Film Orchestra. Um, so yeah, but I basically just thought that the lands, the slate has been wiped clean. Yeah. So maybe it is a good chance to, um, yeah, to start doing our own concerts once things can open again. Great. And then, and then also just use that as a way to kind of uh, get further into that world and build alliances with other orchestras and other groups because mm-hmm. um, so I think everyone like we do need to kind of club together at the moment because if we're going to get more support from each other than we will from the government or for like external things I reckon <laughs> um, so yeah so for me I'm just trying to think of like how can we how can we move forward um, with that kind of mindset sure. I think and mm-hmm. I do want to talk a bit a bit about your plans for the orchestra going forward as well, which um, yeah. which we will we'll get to. Uh, yeah, one sure. of the things you mentioned was the the Americans that were supposed to be coming over, and then you thought, asked about whether you could do it as a remote session instead. Are you set up for yeah. remote sessions where the composer can be in and hearing in real time? Yeah, yeah, sure. So we've got a pretty robust um, tech setup. So Timmy and um, I'm lucky to have a really good technical team that I work with, um, and they've set up uh, uh, quite a. A unique system i think but all the composer has to do is join our zoom call mm-hmm. and then within the zoom chat window is a hyperlink to something called audio movers okay and then that that's that's transmitting that's basically giving them what the microphones on stage are hearing amazing in real time and then zoom is we've got a multi-camera system so we have one that's up in the gallery that's sort of looking down and you can see like the conductor and then the stage right and then we've got a static camera at the back of the hallway you can see the whole stage in kind of a panoramic um, so the composer's got those two views. They can hear everything the mics are hearing. And then they we've got a speaker on stage by the conductor. Okay. That sort of transmits the what the composer says to them, 
basically. Oh, cool. And then there's like there's a little script we we run as well, which is pretty neat. That basically when when we knock Pro Tools into record, everything on Zoom gets muted. Oh, perfect. So if there was like a <laughs> the bus goes past in wherever it is, that it's not going to like interfere. Um. So yeah, up to now it's worked we're really well actually. Um. As I mentioned, Matthias. The Danish composer, he was jo- joining us from like way out in the sticks in Denmark. So I think uh, the internet was a little bit ropey. But yeah. Other than that, it seems to have worked really well. Cool. And with mm. um, with audio movers, the the composer doesn't need to have a subscription to that or anything. No, that's just a browser based cool. thing. So yeah, it just opens it in Chrome or whatever, and then you're away pretty much. But um, but yeah, I was really keen on it not being. I just wanted it to be streamlined and yeah. not like you say. I didn't want people to have to download any extra things and anything crazy like typing in IP addresses or anything like that. Yeah. Just want it to be Zoom. Everyone's familiar with how it works. You just go in, click this, and then you're away pretty yeah. much. But we um, we do like a tech trial run, usually the night before as well. Okay. Um, again, just so just so everyone knows they can just repeat the exact same thing the next day and it's one less thing to worry about. Great. And they can fo- focus on the music. Now, one of the things you've talked quite a lot about at the beginning of, uh, of the chat was... Um, how you're kind of breaking down barriers for a lot of a lot of composers, ones that have mm-hmm. been composing with sample libraries and want to move into orchestral but don't know how to. With things like artificial intelligence and the fact that sample libraries are getting better and better, mm. what do you think the role and the future of live orchestras will be? Do you think it's going mm. to become like kind of more exclusive, so like only for really high-end projects, or even the opposite, like more accessible, like you're trying to make? I don't it? know. I, I think it will become more accessible personally like i'm optimistic that all the technology it's just going to make it easier for people to explore the creative ideas they want and um for me as an orchestra kind of manager there's nothing more there's no product more inherently valuable i'd say than an orchestra if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. in terms of what it offers Mm -hmm. and um it's as popular still a popular thing even as a sort of old technology yeah even if there there hasn't been much change in the setup for like the past hundred years or whatever Hmm. people still pay to go to see orchestral concerts all film and tv and everything still involves the orchestral sound so i definitely don't see it going away um anytime soon i think that the technology it will just um enable people that maybe previously weren't able to engage with that um to sort of play a role in creating music and then also on the flip side of that um kind of engaging yeah, like turning the orchestra into new things, if you know what I mean. So for example, like samples is like, for me, a way to celebrate the orchestra and not necessarily to replicate it, if you know what I mean. That's a great quote. <laughs> yeah. What do you think it is that, um, I mean, I already know the answer to this question because I've watched your promo video on your website, but what do you think <laughs> it is that makes the orchestra such a unique experience? Yeah, uh, well, there's loads of them for a start, <laughs> and it's it is loud, especially if you if you put a few Fs in your score. Yeah, it, is, it does get really loud. But um, I don't. Know, I think it's what I was alluding to before in terms of it's not just about what you walk away with. It is that experience of like like you're not the same person that you were when you come out of the session. I always think like musically speaking, at least. But um, but as well, like everyone who's in the orchestra, they've trained like religiously for years and years and years just to do their one thing at the highest level. So it's almost like, it's like training to be a professional footballer kind of thing. It's like that level of intensity and training that people have. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine there's 53 individuals with kind of that level of expertise and then they're playing your music, I think it's just, you're guaranteed to get um, stunning results, I think. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and, and again, just in like, it's like the craftsmanship element 
that I think that we could maybe lose out on more in the kind of the sample world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is about keeping that old school, older way of doing things alive because mm-hmm. there is a reason why things the way they were. It's because they worked, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, sure. uh, yeah, I think uh, I think those reasons. Great. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned we'll talk about your plans. So you want to try and get into live concerts? What other, what other kind of things have you got planned for the orchestra for the future? Where, where are you headed? So so we've put together a like an isolation um contact library so we've got a uh, we've got cello patch violin viola and then we've got like a brass ensemble patch a wind ensemble one and then a full what we call the isolation ensemble which <laughs> is everything sort of programmed into one big thing um so that was with a guy called dan keen who you might have seen on chris he's been named on christy engine's uh, youtube channel all oh, right because he made um yeah he's made like some really nice sounding um contact libraries one called soft string spurs oh yeah um, yeah 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 that sounds awesome so yeah we work with him on that and then i think moving forward yeah just trying to find it's a great thing with an orchestra is there are a lot of spin-offs you can kind of do from it because because music is like such a broad thing and it connects into so many ways i think um samples would be one thing and then kind of looking at what interdisciplinary projects we can do maybe with visual artists or digital art and things like that so i'm just really kind of open to to seeing what collaborative opportunities there are out there and how we can, yeah, bring um, bring the magic of what the players offer into like new experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think going back to the concerts, for me, the big driver there was the fact that when we record, there's no one in the audience. <laughs> and I'm always thinking like, oh, what a shame that it's just us to hear, watch it. Cause, and then I was like, what if, the, what if there was an audience basically? Yeah, um, yeah. And then And then it's kind of leading to the ideas of like the where you can do like a film with a live orchestra yeah. or you can do, you know, you can do like same with games as well, like celebrating game scores um, in a live concerts. Um, I think where I'm most interested though is to program a concert where the first half is classical music and the second half is film music that everyone recognises. But the piece in the first half is like, it ties in with the film music, oh, cool. if you know what I mean. Yeah, so like let's say, so an, I, yeah, an idea for one concert I've got to do would be, um, it'd be the Green Mile and Shawshank Redemption in the second half. So obviously you've got a bit of a prison theme going there. They're both Thomas Newman. Yeah. And then say the first half would be a classical repertoire piece that is a bit Thomas Newman-esque. Okay. But also ties into that theme of like imprisonment and stuff. So that was my kind of philosophy of like what a Northern Film Orchestra concert would be about. Yeah. Pretty much. Kind of like celebrating the history of of, of where where it all comes from. Yeah. And then also like, cause a lot of our players, they do really love the classical repertoire. So it's like giving them a chance to flex those muscles <laughs> before they move into the film stuff. And then, yeah, to show that link narratively from what's come before to what's now, I think is like a, a really key thing of what I want to achieve with concerts. That's really cool. It's great to mm. have a vision going in rather than just, we're just going to do concerts. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, really definitely. Cool. Um, Bernard Herman as well is another com- composer that I'd love to kind of celebrate yeah. in concert form. So I'm thinking of like a way we can involve um, projection mapping and do like, um, yeah, like Taxi Driver and Psycho with 3D projection. Oh, wow. I just love this idea of like projecting, like the audience is in the taxi and either <laughs> side view is like seedy New York going past Yeah, as the orchestra <laughs> plays like the Taxi Driver theme. Nice. I just think like, just be so cool. And we've like we've got the technology to put that together now. Wow! Wow! Um, in terms of where pro- where projections come along to and everything, so yeah. so it's those kind of things really that I think uh, we'd like to do. That'd be really really cool. Oh, it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Where's the best place for people to find you online, and if they want to book a session with you, how do they go about doing that? 
So you can go to our website, northernfilmorchestra.com. There's also our show, uh, socials, got Northern Film Orchestra on Facebook uh, and same on Instagram. Also our SoundCloud, if you just search Northern Film Orchestra, listen to some of our previous recordings. Um, my own Instagram is JR Hughes Music. Um, you can go find me there and keep up to date with um, orchestra things I'm doing as well as sound design and some hip hop projects as well, if you're interested in that. Perfect. And I'll link to all of those from the show notes as well so you, people can get to them easily too. Awesome. So to finish this off with, I always ask, normally I ask composers what what uh, one piece of advice they'd be for composers, but since we're yeah. sort of focused on working with orchestral recordings, what would be your one piece of advice for a composer who's wanting to work with an orchestra for the first time? Oh, that's a really tough one piece <laughs> of advice. I feel like, uh, I don't know, give give yourself a lot more time. <laughs> give yourself the, mo- the most more time, the most amount of time you can to do things, basically. Get, get your piece finished well in advance. So you can have lots of long conversations with the music team. So everyone's all on the same page with what you're trying to achieve with your music. I think, uh, yeah, if you did that, that would get you a long way. Great. Well, thank you so much for such an insightful uh, com- uh, conversation. That's Jack. all right. Yeah, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Cheers. No Thanks worries. for having me. No worries and take care. Thanks. All right. I hope you loved that episode as much as I did creating it. Email me at johnny at soundtrack.academy. That's J-O-N-N-Y to let me know what your biggest takeaway was. Remember to hop on the newsletter by visiting soundtrack.academy slash newsletter. And this week, I want to give a shout out and a big thank you to all members of the Music for Moving Image Facebook group. You're all creating a really wonderful space in there by getting involved in threads and supporting one another. Thank you so much. All right, speak soon.